As commented on by Dr. Vogel and Ms. Stein, one of the most common challenging situations in adjuvant therapy is the patient with a node-negative, estrogen-receptor-positive tumor where the issue is whether chemotherapy should be added to hormone therapy. This situation is particularly challenging in older patients, and I met with Dr. Tom Budd to learn how he thinks through this situation in a woman in her 70s. Talking to a patient like this, you try to get an idea of what their a priori feelings are in view of things as you've described, what's important to them. I often will use the adjuvant online program to get an idea of the magnitude of benefit from various treatments. Can you kind of and explain what adjuvant online is? So adjuvant online is a program which actually is accessible on the internet, can be downloaded to uh, Palm Pilot or a similar PDA, and you can input various clinical factors, age, tumor size, hormone receptors, nodal status, and very importantly, comorbidities to get an idea, first of all, how long the patient can expect to live without breast cancer, also what the risk of recurrence is, what the risk of the cancer coming back without adjuvant therapy, and then it can estimate the magnitude of benefit of various treatments, of chemotherapy, hormone treatments, or both. I tell patients these are estimates. There are always things that you know that are not in the program, HER2 status, and so on. But it gives a feel for the magnitude of benefit because patients, and probably physicians and nurses, usually overestimate the value of what we do in terms of the magnitude. So I think it is very helpful to share with the patient. Some patients don't like hard numbers, and you have to understand that also and just get a feel for it. The patients such as you describe, I think the value of chemotherapy is relatively minor, and very many 70-year-olds would elect not to take adjuvant chemotherapy. Another thing that can be used is the Oncotype DX. So if a patient and the doctor are not absolutely certain what to do, in other words, they're going to use the result, then it is useful to send the tumor off, have this test done, which will also quantitate the benefit of treatment. Can you talk a little bit about sort of roughly what the numbers might be for somebody like this in terms of the chance to relapse, how that might be affected by chemotherapy and hormonal therapy overall, and then sort of what the Oncotype DX assay is and how it might help you in this situation? Well, in a 70-year-old, a 1.7 centimeter tumor, it's estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor negative. I think the risk of recurrence is probably in the 15% range, something like that. Adjuvant hormonal therapy can reduce that, let's say, to 10 to 12%. The benefit of chemotherapy would probably be a percent or so. Sort or, of overall. Yeah, something like that. So the value of chemotherapy would be relatively modest. A younger patient often will take that magnitude of benefit. An older patient who has fewer years in front of them, for whatever reason, may not. It depends on a lot of personal things that you can't necessarily quantitate. But I think it helps a patient to get an idea of the magnitude of benefit. The Oncotype DX will look at tumor characteristics. It doesn't incorporate age or other patient characteristics and give an estimate of the magnitude of benefit from chemotherapy on top of hormonal therapy, specifically tamoxifen. And can you talk a little bit more about what the Oncotype DX actually is, what kind of results you get, and sort of what those results mean? The Oncotype DX is a test looking at the expression of 21 genes in the patient's tumor. 
and it quantitates these genes, tells how much they're turned on or turned off, and from this generates a score. The score then relates to, first of all, the risk of the cancer metastasizing to distant sites at 10 years. And it also estimates the magnitude of benefit from chemotherapy so that patients with a low score have a lower risk of recurrence and also a lesser benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients with a high score have a higher risk of recurrence with hormone treatment alone and a greater benefit from chemotherapy. And it's these patients who we're most likely to recommend chemotherapy. Now, of course, if a patient and a doctor are not going to use the results of this test, there's no reason to do it. And that's the first thing that has to be decided. If the results are going to be ignored, you're going to give treatment regardless, or you're going to not give chemotherapy regardless of the score. Of course, there's no reason to do it. So you said that just sort of looking at a patient like this without trying to narrow it down more, that there might be a 15% overall risk if you had 100 women, so Mm -hmm. to speak, with very modest impact of chemotherapy. Suppose the woman was in, I guess it's about 25% of women like this have high oncotype DX Mm -hmm. recurrence scores. Suppose she had a high score. How would that affect her chance of recurrence and the benefit of chemotherapy? If she has a high recurrence score in the high-risk group, then it can reduce the risk of recurrence by about three-quarters in relative terms. So let's say it's 15%, then it could reduce it to 5%, something which would be two-thirds, but in that magnitude of benefit, so that it could tip you into making a decision to give chemotherapy. Overall, in the high-risk group, what's sort of the recurrence rate for the high-risk patients? It's in the range of 30%. So pretty substantial, and then you're saying about three-quarters of that can be eliminated by chemotherapy. Right. So let's say in that situation, what are the kinds of chemotherapy you might consider for a woman who's in there around age 70? Well, I think the chemotherapy you would consider would be CMF in node-negative patients. Adromycin cyclophosphamide is another standard regimen that's used. I think one of the presentations at ASCO this year actually gave some insight into the cardiac toxicity where it looked like patients at least over age 65 their rate of heart failure may have been 5% higher than patients who received non-anthracycline chemotherapy, so that the risk seemed greater than at least I had previously thought. Yeah, that was um, kind of an important study that just came out at the ASCO meeting. That was the one from MD Anderson. Yes. Uh-huh. And I guess they, I don't know whether I've seen this before, they looked at the risk of cardiac problems with adriamycin based on age. Right. And I guess they saw more with older women and more with women with like hypertension right. and not those hypertension, kinds of things. diabetes, you know, cardiac risk factors also predispose them for cardiac toxicity from anthracyclines. What they used were the SEER database to look at these patients who were followed relatively long term. You know, one thing we've never known is what's the risk of getting heart failure if you don't get the chemotherapy. And that was one value of this. And of course, patients, as they get older in their 70s and 80s, a large portion of them develop heart failure without chemotherapy. But more of them develop heart failure if they get anthracycline-based chemotherapy. And I think, at least for me, that was a bit of an eye-opener. And I thought a very important paper was well done. So that I think we do need to think about this when we make recommendations to patients. Other regimens that have been used are taxotere cyclophosphamide, which was compared to adromycin cyclophosphamide and appeared to be superior in a U.S. oncology group study. There was not a survival advantage, but improvement in relapse-free survival, it was pretty substantial. So I think that is a possibility in some patients as well. 
Do you see things moving in the future more towards these type of genomic type analyses of tumors to try to you know give more insight into how to treat these patients? Absolutely. We know that we're over-treating the majority of patients to benefit a few. And if we can have better insights into who those few are so that we can direct treatment at those few, we will have just as good an outcome and much less risk of toxicity. So I do think that's where we'll be going. I'm optimistic that in the future we will be able to pick specific treatments for specific patients based on genomic profiles or some other technology that looks at tumor characteristics. And perhaps patient characteristics, too. Patients differ in how they metabolize drugs and so on. I think that will be very important. Can you talk about sort of the spectrum of what you see and how women react to the idea of receiving adjuvant chemotherapy, particularly in these borderline situations? You know, sometimes I wonder whether or not patients almost, there's almost like a feeling of guilt that makes them want to go receive chemotherapy and the thought that, well, maybe I'll be that one in a hundred patient who dies because I didn't receive it. And they're almost looking for permission not to get chemotherapy. What do you see in terms of the the whole spectrum of how women respond to this difficult situation? People are very different, as you can imagine. Many people come in with an idea that they don't want to take chemotherapy, and sometimes if their benefit looks like it will be substantial, it takes some convincing. Some patients, particularly young mothers, seem highly motivated to do absolutely anything and everything that they can. It's my experience, and I think many others, that Being around to raise their children is such a strong motivator among young women that they will go to extraordinary lengths even for a relatively modest benefit. It is, I think, very variable from person to person. I wonder if there are any women in your practice that you've taken care of that you could sort of briefly describe where the Oncotype DX has been helpful, either where the Oncotype maybe helped in terms of being able to avoid chemotherapy or maybe helped in terms of having the woman feel better about receiving chemotherapy. I'm thinking of a relatively young woman in her 40s who had a node-negative ER-positive breast cancer, maybe 1.2, 1.3 centimeters. So I talked to her about the oncotype. She was interested in it, so we ordered the test, and it came back low-risk. So that I suggested she take hormonal therapy alone with tamoxifen. And she seemed comfortable with that. Then went back, talked to her friends. Her friends say, well, why don't you take chemotherapy? All these other people are taking chemotherapy. You're young. You should do everything you can for yourself. So she had to come back, and it involved a relatively lengthy conversation to then go over the oncotype and make the point that it predicted not only the outcome with hormone therapy alone, but also the magnitude of benefit with chemotherapy. And in her particular situation, it looked like the chemotherapy would be of very little, if any, benefit. And with that, she was comfortable. But it just shows that when patients go out, they talk to their friends, and it raises more questions in their mind, which I think is healthy. But it's a tough decision. It's interesting. What was her lifestyle situation? Who was in her family? Was she working? She was working. She was married. She lived a ways away, probably an hour and a half away. So the chemotherapy, if she was going to get it for me, would have been a bit of a difficulty. But I don't think that was a deciding factor at all. If she had turned out to have a high recurrence score in this situation, a woman in her 40s, what do you think you would have likely used in terms of chemotherapy? In a woman like this, I might have even used an anthracycline and taxane containing chemotherapy if the score was very high. 
Other options would be CMF, agemycin cyclophosphamide. I would offer the intergroup trial, C40101. That looks at agemycin cyclophosphamide given every two weeks or paclitaxel single agent given every two weeks. And then there's another randomization for either four or six cycles. And I usually will bring that up with patients. Another option would be docetaxel cyclophosphamide, which has the appeal of being a relatively short regimen. It's four cycles. If you look at the proportional risk reduction as compared to adding paclitaxel to adromycin cyclophosphamide, it is every bit as good or even greater, actually, in terms of the magnitude of benefit in a different group of patients, of course. So I think that is another attractive regimen. So if you had used an anthracycline and a taxane together, what regimen do you think you might have used for I usually use dose-dense adromycin cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel. And I am using that in patients who are node-negative and high-risk. I think we are going to targeted treatment. If you use the oncotype and believe in it, in a sense, you are targeting chemotherapy-responsive patients. Martin Picard at San Antonio kind of presented the consensus recommendations, which basically, if you have a target, go for it. And the choice is first based on the target. And I think a corollary or an extension might be, if you're going to give chemotherapy, give the best chemotherapy. And when we talk about targets in breast cancer, basically you're talking about estrogen receptor and the HER2 receptor. And I want to talk with you and find out how you sort through choosing the type of targeted therapy regimen specifically. So again, getting back to the no negative situation, your patient who was in her 40s, was she premenopausal? She was premenopausal. And then the patient I started out with, which is a patient around 70 being mm-hmm. postmenopausal, can you talk about sort of the approach to choice of hormonal therapy in the premenopausal and postmenopausal woman in the adjuvant setting? In a postmenopausal woman, I will generally go with an aromatase inhibitor, unless there's a strong reason not to. Osteoporosis, I might even consider it in somebody who's at high risk with appropriate informed consent from the patient. So I will generally use an aromatase inhibitor up front. That's my general practice. In a premenopausal woman, I will generally use tamoxifen as a single agent. These patients I will present with the SOFT trial, which randomizes patients to tamoxifen alone, ovarian functional suppression plus tamoxifen, or ovarian functional suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. Because I think it really is an excellent trial. It's addressing very important issues, and we really need to know the optimal hormonal regimen for these patients. Off study, I will generally use tamoxifen. Can you sort of dissect out that SOFT trial? in terms of why it is they're looking at those three arms, sort of what the background is, because I think it really cuts to the whole issue of where we're heading in hormonal therapy. Yeah. We do have good evidence that tamoxifen is an effective regimen in premenopausal patients. We have, for instance, the no-negative trials, tamoxifen versus nothing clearly showed a benefit in premenopausal as well as postmenopausal patients, and there are other supportive data. In the metastatic setting, we have a randomized trial from the ORTC. We have a meta-analysis of other trials indicating that the combination of ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen is superior to either tamoxifen or ovarian suppression alone. And we like to think that what we find in the metastatic setting will also apply to the adjuvant setting. So that giving a combination of ovarian functional suppression plus tamoxifen is appealing. This has been compared to chemotherapy in premenopausal ER-positive patients and is as good. So that there is some support for this, but we don't have a direct comparison of those two approaches. I should say there was a small intergroup trial led by ECOG, was reported by Nick Robert, 
in patients who did not receive chemotherapy. This trial under-accrued, unfortunately, and as a result, it's hard to draw a conclusion, but there was no significant difference between tamoxifen and tamoxifen plus ovarian functional suppression in terms of outcome. The combination was the curve on top, but it was not even close to being statistically significant. What was statistically significant was a difference in toxicity. So patients who had ovarian ablation had greater toxicity. So that in general, since we don't have proof of greater benefit, but we do have proof of greater toxicity, I will tend to use tamoxifen alone. But certainly there's a rationale to study the combination, which is very strong. The third arm, looking at ovarian functional suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor, is very logical. If an aromatase inhibitor is better than tamoxifen in postmenopausal patients, what if we make premenopausal patients postmenopausal? Will an aromatase inhibitor be superior then? And so that's a very logical question. So I really like this trial because it builds on what we know about tamoxifen, but also takes another step to looking forward to an aromatase inhibitor. So I think it's a very important trial. It's difficult to get patients on a study like this. It's a small subgroup of patients who remain premenopausal following chemotherapy, which is a requirement of the study. I should say previous studies have tried to look at the appropriate hormonal manipulation in premenopausal women. They've been confounded by the fact that chemotherapy will induce menopause in many patients so that many patients, in effect, get a combination of ovarian functional suppression plus tamoxifen, which makes it difficult to dissect exactly what is what. And you mentioned that chemotherapy often stops menstruation, puts women into menopause. What do you do with patients, like your patient, for example, in the 40s, who gets chemotherapy and stops having their menstrual periods, starts getting hot flashes? Do you treat her as a postmenopausal patient or premenopausal patient? Well, it's a very important question. There was a publication not long ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, it's funded by the Department of Defense, looking at a large number of women treated with chemotherapy and looking at their menstrual history. They kept very careful menstrual records. Hormonal studies were not done as part of this, but very careful records were taken of their menses. And it's clear that women can recover their menstrual periods following a chemotherapy-induced menopause, and this can occur up to two to three years following the cessation of chemotherapy. And this is dependent on age and regimen to some extent, but maybe 20% of women will recover their menses, depending on their age and the particular regimen used. So what this means is if you use an aromatase inhibitor, and the patient recovers their ovarian function, you are not giving them effective therapy. So that in general, patients with chemotherapy-induced menopause, I will treat with tamoxifen for two to three years and then switch them at that point to an aromatase inhibitor. So this is the group of women, which is a pretty big group of women, actually, where I'm tending to use a switching strategy most commonly. I do think when this is done that it's important to monitor your patients I've had the experience of having patients recover their menstrual periods once you switch them to an aromatase inhibitor. And I've also had the experience of monitoring their estradiol levels. And actually, they do not go to the sub-postmenopausal levels, very low levels, that we're trying to produce with aromatase inhibitors. Can you explain why it is that aromatase inhibitors are not effective in premenopausal women? 
Partly, it is because there's toxicity that can produce sort of a polycystic ovary-type syndrome, so there's a toxicity associated with it. And the source of estrogen is in the ovaries. The aromatase inhibitors can be overdriven by the pituitary gland, so that because there is an intact pituitary ovarian axis, that ovaries can be stimulated to produce more estrogen, and it's this that I believe can cause this polycystic ovary syndrome. So I guess essentially the objective of the AI is to dramatically lower the estrogen level, and with the ovaries on board, that just doesn't happen? Right. What about the patient who's postmenopausal and has been started on tamoxifen, comes in to see you for a second opinion, or moves and comes to see you? This is a patient who you might have started on aromatase inhibitors to start with, but somebody else started on tamoxifen, now you're seeing her two years later, for example. How would you approach that situation? I will discuss with the patient switching to an aromatase inhibitor at that point or completing five years of tamoxifen and switching to an aromatase inhibitor at that point. Either one is a viable strategy. It's interesting that the studies of the switching strategy have shown a larger magnitude of benefit from switching to an aromatase inhibitor than when the comparison is up front, aromatase inhibitor to tamoxifen. Now, why this is, is somewhat mysterious to me. There are several possibilities. One is, of course, the different patient populations. Two, it could be there's some sort of priming effect with tamoxifen, which sort of sets the tumor up for aromatase inhibition. If this is the case, then a question is, how long should you give tamoxifen? Maybe you could do the same thing with three months or six months, something like that. So biologic studies need to be done to look at that hypothesis. Another possibility is that by treating a patient for two years with tamoxifen, you're kind of selecting out the patients who are hormone responsive, so those patients who are tamoxifen resistant at least, will have relapsed in that period of time. So you're really looking at a group of patients that's enriched for hormone responsiveness. And it's these patients who particularly benefit from a better hormone. Or it could be, to some extent, a statistical anomaly because you're kind of throwing away those first two years. So that it's an interesting observation. I think it does have possible biologic explanations that should be explored. From a practical point of view, if I see somebody in this situation, I will generally recommend switching to an aromatase inhibitor. Now, the other issue in this situation is how long should an aromatase inhibitor be given? The studies that were done that looked at this strategy essentially completed five years of hormonal therapy. So a patient who took tamoxifen for two years, was switched to an aromatase inhibitor, was treated for three years. If you complete five years of tamoxifen and switch, as was done in MA17, the protocol called for five years of aromatase inhibitor therapy. When people have looked at the rate at which these patients relapsed, it continued to show benefit up to five years. So that my practice is when I switch someone at two years, I will generally give five years of an aromatase inhibitor at that point, and I will tell them that five years from now, Hopefully, we'll have more information, and I may recommend that they continue further. But for right now, I will give five years of aromatase inhibitor, recognizing that that's not what was done in the studies that showed a benefit from this switching approach. What about the patient who's been on an aromatase inhibitor for five years? How do you approach the question of whether to stop it or keep it going? Well, this is a tough situation. I will generally stop the treatment. If someone is at high risk, a node-positive patient is tolerating treatment well, I will discuss with them continuing treatment. My gut feeling is that it would be better to continue the aromatase inhibitor treatment, and whether patients should be treated on my gut feelings instead of data, we can argue, but in some situations, if that's all you have to go on, that's what we'll go on. 
Yes, one of the things in the last few years we've become more sensitized to is the possibility of a late recurrence. Particularly, we've known that happens in breast cancer, but it seems like we've gotten more focused in on the fact that how much more common that is in the patient with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Can you talk about sort of the time course of recurrence when it occurs with ER negative versus ER positive tumors? If you look at the rate of recurrence of patients with breast cancer, and plot it out, you get a bump in the first two to three years, and then the rate of recurrence diminishes, but it never goes down to zero. If you pick out the ER negative and ER positive patients, that bump in the first two to three years is mostly due to the ER negative patients. And this continuing risk for recurrence out 5, 10, 15 years is mostly from the ER-positive patients. It's been said that something like half the recurrences in ER-positive breast cancer occur after five years. So that patients may feel they've reached the five-year mark and are home free. And unfortunately, we all know that's not the case. They still have a risk of recurrence. And it's interesting that with giving an aromatase inhibitor at that point, you can still affect that risk of recurrence. Can you talk a little bit about how you decide which of the three aromatase inhibitors you're going to use in different situations? What I generally will do is to use the aromatase inhibitor in the situation where it's been studied. So that's a logical thing to do. There are situations where I'll tend to use one over another. One situation we talked about was patients who have chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea. And exemestane has been studied in the switching strategy. That's usually the drug I'll use when I'm using the switching strategy. But in this situation where someone has chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea and where I might be wanting to follow estradiol levels, I'll tend to use a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor because it's been found that the steroidal aromatase inhibitor, exemestane, can cross-react in the estradiol assay. So it complicates following the patient if you're going to be monitoring the estradiols. In postmenopausal women who's switching after two, two or three years, I'll tend to use exemestane in that situation. In someone who's completing five years of treatment, you're giving extended adjuvant treatment, I will tend to use letrozole because that's the drug for which we have the most data and the most follow-up, although other drugs have been studied. In the upfront studies, I'll tend to use, at least right now, anastrozole or letrozole. Can you talk a little bit about what you say to a patient who is going to start on aromatase inhibitor in terms of possible side effects and complications, and how that compares to what you would say to a postmenopausal patient starting on tamoxifen? In a patient who is starting tamoxifen, I will generally tell them that the side effects that patients complain about most are hot flashes. There may be vaginal dryness or vaginal discharge. I tell them that many patients complain of weight gain, but I also tell them that placebo produces the same degree of weight gain, so it's not at all clear that the tamoxifen is responsible for that. And then I tell them those are mostly nuisance side effects. They can be very bothersome, but the dangerous side effects are increased risk of blood clots, increased risk of uterine cancer, and slightly increased risk of cataracts. In a patient who's receiving an aromatase inhibitor, I will, or if I'm contrasting it with tamoxifen, I will tell them they may have hot flashes, but in general they're milder than those with tamoxifen. They may have vaginal dryness. I tell them some patients get joint aches and pains with an aromatase inhibitor. 
This tends to improve with time. It happens in a minority of patients. It can be treated, but in some patients it is not acceptable and leads to treatment being discontinued. And then I tell them the serious side effect that we were about are effects on bone density. So then we go into monitoring bone density, inquire as to whether they've had their bone density checked, family history, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about the arthralgias that you see with AIs, you know, sort of where it occurs and how difficult it is? Is there a tie, you know, is it more early morning or anything else about the clinical characteristics? Well, I would say the clinical characteristics are variable. What's been sort of classically described is arthralgias in the hands predominantly tends to be worse in the morning, tends to get better with more prolonged treatment. I also have patients who just complain of aches and pains everywhere particularly when they get up in the morning. How often does it become such a problem? You either want to switch treatment or stop it. This becomes a problem that leads to some manipulation, stopping treatment or switching some single-digit percent of the time, less than 5% probably. If the anti-tumor effect of tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors was the same, would that affect your choice? Would you still choose an AI because of the side effects and toxicity profile? I probably would. If you look at the studies comparing an aromatase inhibitor and tamoxifen, there are fewer patients who quit aromatase inhibitor than who quit tamoxifen. Also, in some patients who have uterine fibroids, you're ending up with hysterectomies for various reasons. Patients will have thickening of the endometrium on ultrasound, and they may end up having endometrial biopsies, DNCs, and so on when they're taking tamoxifen, so that in most cases, I find the aromatase inhibitor is better tolerated. I guess the one thing about tamoxifen is in terms of endometrial cancer and deep vein thrombosis, stroke, whatever... You can't really predict who's going to get that. No, you can't. Does it tend to occur more in older patients? Well, I think it tends to occur more in people who are predisposed to develop these problems. It happens more often in patients who have genetic abnormalities predisposing them to thrombosis. So a family history is important. If someone has no thrombotic history, no family history of thrombosis, there is still some risk with tamoxifen. I want to sort of switch over to the other type of targeted therapy in breast cancer, which is trastuzumab, targeting the HER2 receptor. These clinical situations we've been talking about to now, we've talked about the patient being HER2 negative. How would you approach this same kind of a situation? Let's say, again, a tumor that's no negative in the 1.5 to 2 centimeter range, but in a patient who has a HER2 positive tumor. In a patient whose tumor is more than 1 centimeter in size, I think we have data that says that trastuzumab adds to chemotherapy. So this comes from the HERA trial, where the magnitude of benefit of trastuzumab following chemotherapy seemed to be as great in node-negative as in node-positive patients. In the BCIRG trial, there were node-negative patients as well. There were relatively few in the intergroup trial, but I think there's no reason to think that the benefit of trastuzumab would depend upon a nodal positivity. So I will tend to use it in patients whose tumors are greater than a centimeter in size. If I decide to use trastuzumab, I'll generally also give chemotherapy, and I tend to give the same chemotherapy that was given in the studies that showed a benefit. Because I'm used to the intergroup trial, I will usually use AC followed by weekly paclitaxel. And sort of when does the trastuzumab start and end? I start the trastuzumab concurrent with the paclitaxel, and I continue it for a total of a year. Which, of course, is what the trials did. 
What do you say to the patient in terms of what to expect in terms of reducing the risk of recurrence and death because of using trastuzumab? Well, I tell them it reduces the risk of recurrence by about half and death by a third. So that's above and beyond whatever benefit they might get from chemotherapy, hormonal therapy. Right. So that it ends up being a substantial benefit in patients who are at high risk. What about people who've been diagnosed with HER2-positive tumors in the past, maybe you know, right a year or two before these trastuzumab data came out, which is really just May 2005? We talked about giving hormone therapy you know, for a long period of time or delayed. What about using trastuzumab in a delayed fashion? I'm actually, at this point, not starting any more patients on trastuzumab because all the patients that I personally have followed have been through that risk period. In general, I have kind of followed what was done in the studies, which when they were stopped, patients who were within six months of completing their chemotherapy, which works out to be about a year of their surgery, were offered trastuzumab. And so I generally followed that. Now, we don't have any data. I don't know if we ever will have any data. You can argue the risk of recurrence is there for two to three years years following surgery, and you could argue to give trastuzumab in that situation. I just have tended not to just because we haven't had the data. And at this point, we've kind of gone through that period so that I don't think we'll ever get that information, and hopefully that will be relegated to problems of the past. What about using trastuzumab without chemotherapy, maybe in an older woman where you're really reluctant to use chemotherapy? I can't say that I've done it, but I could certainly imagine scenarios where I would. If you look at the HERA trial, patients received chemotherapy, which was followed by trastuzumab, and there was a substantial benefit. And I think one might also say there would be a benefit in patients who did not receive chemotherapy, but received monotherapy with trastuzumab or trastuzumab plus hormonal therapy. So that while there's no direct information to say that it would be a benefit, I think it's not an unreasonable generalization in a specific case. I can imagine, for instance, an elderly woman that you wouldn't want to give chemotherapy to for some reason. Obviously, if someone had cardiac toxicity, you would avoid trastuzumab, but there are other comorbidities that you could imagine that would relatively contraindicate chemotherapy, risk a patient in whom sepsis would be a likely fatal event, something like that. You mentioned cardiac toxicity. What do you say to patients in terms of what to expect in terms of the possibility of having cardiac toxicity from trastuzumab? Well, I generally tell them it's around 4% with the whole regimen, assuming that we start with the trastuzumab but that the long-term outcome of the cardiac toxicity we really don't know. It tends to respond to treatment, but what the results will be 10, 20, 30 years from now, we really don't know. What's the natural history in terms of the women who do develop cardiac problems? Well, they tend to improve with discontinuing the drug and treating the heart failure. I have many patients with whom I have experience in the metastatic setting in whom I continue the trastuzumab, we treat the heart failure, and they get better. There, in the trials that were done, when trastuzumab was discontinued, most patients improved, although usually they were also treated. So it may be more accurate to say they responded to treatment than to say that their heart failure resolved. What kind of cardiac monitoring do you do in patients who are going to get trastuzumab? I monitor them in a manner similar to what was done in the trial, which was a little bit unusual, three, six, nine, 18 months. I will generally monitor the patients every three months off study 
just for simplicity's sake. Because in the off-study situation, we're not trying to generate data about the long-term toxicity. We're trying to manage patients. So I'll generally do it every three months. And what tests specifically do you do? I generally do echocardiograms at our institution. And you're just looking for a drop in ejection fraction? Is it the amount of drop that occurs or the absolute level? What is it that determines when you start getting nervous about continuing trastuzumab? Well, it's both the drop and to a below normal number. To my mind, the most important is if you get an ejection fraction which is below the lower limits of normal. The ejection fraction, as we all know, is very variable. There's at least a 10% variation if you do it today and do it tomorrow. So that a 10% drop may not mean anything. Now, we were talking before about chemotherapy without an anthracycline, and there has been a regimen with trastuzumab without an anthracycline, the TCH regimen, taxotere, carboplatinum, and trastuzumab. What are your thoughts about that as an option, particularly in somebody maybe who has a cardiac history? It is a regimen for which there are data now. And so for such a patient, I think it is a reasonable alternative. What's made me wonder about it is the metastatic study, BCRG007, that was presented at ASCO, in which patients received treatment with either docetaxel at 100 milligrams per meter squared plus trastuzumab, or docetaxel at 75 milligrams per meter squared plus carboplatin plus trastuzumab. And in terms of efficacy, the outcomes were the same. So that I wonder in the adjuvant setting whether the carboplatin is really necessary if you give 100 milligrams per meter squared of docetaxel. I don't know the answer to that, but you can't help but wonder. I want to ask about another form, I guess you could call it targeted therapy, although I'm not sure we know what the target is, which is bevacizumab or Avastin, which we've been using for colon cancer for a little while, and now we're starting to see data come out in breast and lung cancer. Can you talk about what bevacizumab does and what we know about bevacizumab in breast cancer? Well, I think most of the data we have comes from E2100, in which women receive paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab. There was a prolongation of progression-free survival, which means the time to the patient's tumor gets worse. The early follow-up indicated there might be a survival advantage. With later follow-up, it looks like there is no significant survival advantage so far. So that indicates that using the drug up front, the response rate may be higher, maybe longer before the patient gets worse. This data was generated with the use of paclitaxel. There had been a previous study looking at patients in second or third line treatment who were treated with capecitabine with or without bevacizumab. That trial showed a higher response rate, but no prolongation to the time to progression or survival advantage and was viewed as a negative study. There was safety information, though, indicating that that regimen was safe to give. So that what I would say is my tendency is if I use bevacizumab, I will use it up front. I am not necessarily wedded to using it with paclitaxel as a single agent. I think that, at least with capecitabine, we have evidence of some increased efficacy in terms of response rate, and we have toxicity data, and we also have toxicity data with other agents as well. So I will use it with other agents if it makes sense to do so based on the patient's prior treatment. Can you talk about how bevacizumab works? I wish I could answer that question more intelligently. When we first started studying bevacizumab, the idea was that it was anti-angiogenic, it would choke off the blood supply to tumors. There is a newer hypothesis indicating that it normalizes the blood vessels or the vasculature in the tumor, which can result in a reduction in interstitial pressure to more normal blood vessels, which deliver chemotherapy more efficiently. So it may actually act by delivering chemotherapy to the tumor in a more efficient 
matter, and that may be one mechanism by which it works. Another possibility is there would be direct anti-tumor effects. There have been VEGF receptors described on tumor cells, so it's conceivable that it acts as a direct anti-tumor agent, although to my knowledge we have no direct evidence of that. What do you say to patients about the side effects and toxicities of bevacizumab? I tell them that the side effects are different than chemotherapy side effects, so that they need to differentiate in their mind that it's, although it's a drug we give intravenously, it's not the same as cytotoxic chemotherapy. I tell them that the side effects include predominantly high blood pressure, proteinuria, which is generally not a problem. I tell them they may have either a tendency for bleeding or clotting, either one, and that we need to keep an eye on that. And I tell them that rarely there have been these cases of bowel perforation. How do patients feel in your experience when they're receiving bevacizumab? Well, I would have to say I don't have that much experience with bevacizumab. I would say it is generally a well-tolerated drug. Any specific so, side effects? Any patients know? Well, some patients will have headache, which generally can be controlled with analgesia. So I think in terms of subjective toxicity, probably headache is the main thing that patients complain about. And then we have to monitor their blood pressure. I think that's the, the main thing that I've noticed. Where do you see the use of bevacizumab in breast cancer heading in the future? I think there will be expanding use in the metastatic setting. An issue is whether it is useful in the second-line setting, so studies to look at that will be underway. There will be studies looking at it with various agents in frontline setting. There are studies underway looking at it in conjunction with trastuzumab, in conjunction with hormonal therapy. And, of course, the next step will be into the adjuvant setting, and those trials are being planned.